Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Technology and germs seem to be moving faster than ever before. And many governments, including the United States, have proven incapable of keeping pace. In the July issue, Daniel Bessner traces the history of the liberal internationalism that has long dominated American foreign policy and why that approach has failed to meet the challenges of issues like climate change, pandemics, and mass migration. As the United States' economic, manufacturing, cultural, and military power declines, what will come next? I spoke with Bessner about his essay, The Forces Keeping Cold War-Era Habits of Mind Firmly in Place and America's Damaged Democracy. You know, I really like this essay a lot, and I think it it's something that people on either side of the aisle can agree on, is that America, she ain't what it used to be. The American century, <laughs> the American century is over. I also like that you come up with these categories about foreign policy that kind of transcend traditional political categories, which are restrainers and liberal internationalists. So could you break down what those two two sides are and uh, a little bit about their historical lineage? Sure. So just broadly speaking, liberal internationalists believe the United States should continue to dominate the world through both military and economic primacy, which simply means that the United States will maintain the most powerful military on earth and will ensure that it fosters economic benefits that redound to itself, as well as ensuring that the dollar remains the international reserve currency. Um, Restrainers, broadly speaking, think the United States should be more circumspect about using military power, though there are some disagreements. Um, Most restrainers agree that the Middle East, that the United States shouldn't really spend much time or effort in the Middle East, but there are disagreements within the restrainer community about um, how much the United States should confront China with more left-leaning restrainers like myself, um, aligning with more libertarian restrainers who, who maintain that the U.S. shouldn't really confront China, whereas realists think that the United States should um, should basically try to confront uh, China. These two traditions have longstanding histories in U.S. history. Uh, Restraint goes back to George Washington when in his farewell address, he suggested that the United States avoid entangling alliances um, in Europe, even though, of course, he didn't think that was the case when it came to the continental United States or the Western Hemisphere. So there's a bit of a tension there. Obviously, Washington was in favor of westward expansion and many other presidents came after, though the idea was that you maintain an aloofness from Europe itself, that you try to create a new world in the Western Hemisphere and and not get bogged down in European affairs. Uh, And that's a strong tradition throughout U.S. history until roughly World War II, which which basically put an end to restraint until very recently because restraint became associated with pacifists or America firsters Mm -hmm. um, and characters like that. Uh, In terms of liberal internationalism, that's really an ideology traced more to Woodrow Wilson. And he was a president who was informed by progressive era ideas about social management and things along those lines. Um, So many progressives effectively maintained that you could use the tools of social science to basically manage political affairs. And Wilson thought that 
those tools as well as reason generally would be able to manage international affairs. So he's the first one to advocate for a form of liberal internationalism, which during World War II is very closely linked to an ideology of uh, American domination. Right. And I mean, is restraint possible in a country founded on the opposing value of expansion? Even if the American empire is in a bad place, historically speaking, what does it look like without that fundamental drive? I mean, it's always possible, certainly. But I think you're right to say that this sort of expansionary impulse, it was evident in the United States from the very beginning of its history. So I think it would it would be a significant departure and it would take a lot of work. Uh, Americans especially in 2022, uh, they assume that they have the right and duty to govern the world. And that's because Americans like myself are, are taught that from almost the beginning of their lives in, in courses and in, in classes in high school and beyond. You're asked to consider questions of foreign policy, or at least what the United States should do. You're expected to have an opinion on, on a lot of world regions. Um, and that's just a reflection of this American imperialist ideology, the belief that the United States has the right and duty to govern the world. Um, I do think that there are uh, reasons why Americans should question that idea that I explicate in the article. So I do think it's possible, but I, I agree that it would be a radical departure from how most Americans have approached um, their country's role in the world for, for decades at this point and longer in many cases as well. Right. And I mean, I think you you make a good argument as to why American exceptionalism exists, because this is an exceptional empire. <laughs> you know, that, you know, historically speaking, just the economic, cultural, and you've all these, you know, military strengths is, is, and it, and its reach is kind of unprecedented. And some of that has to do with the amount of land that the United States has, its, its natural resources, uh, the fact that it was built primarily through free labor, through slavery, but also things like globalization. And so do you think it's possible in an era where the world is just so connected that we could eventually come to exist without a single hegemon like the United States or only China, that there could perhaps be something where it's less, <laughs> maybe not total parity, but a, a, a little bit less concentrated power? I think that's almost inevitable. Uh, I think the material sources of the United States' domination don't exist to the same degree that they have in the past. Whether you're looking at 1945, that is right after World War II, when the United States was just enormously powerful and you know was responsible for something like 50% of world exports, or um, would you look, whether you look at 1991, the end of the Cold War, the, the final end of the Cold War, where the United States and its allies were responsible for something like, I forget, 66 or 67% of world GDP. Um, today they're responsible for much less than that. I think something like 30 or 31%. I have the exact numbers in the article. Um, so just the material sources of the domination are no longer are no longer possible, um, are, are no longer rather, they're no longer evident. So you're definitely going to see the quote unquote rise of other powers, um, particularly in regions that are far from the United States, uh, like East Asia, and, and perhaps over time, Eastern Europe as well. So the question is, at least in my mind, given the fact that that's ultimately coming down the pike, 
what do you do with that reality? Um, given that you are, uh, that one might expect the United States as a relative power position to decline, which it already has, what do you do with that? And I think the United States should be planning for a world where it's just one among many, or at least several major powers, um, as opposed to, you know, something dramatic happening in the United States, just leaving allies and partners in the lurch, as may happen if, if, for example, China decides to uh, try to conquer Taiwan and there's no real contingency plan for that, and the United States isn't really going to fight World War III over Taiwan, we should be thinking about situations like that and how we could foster a form of security transition that I think would be the wisest way forward. Right. But what if instead of Taiwan, it was some, for whatever reason, uh, it was an American uh, satellite of power like Israel? You know, and again, I don't. I, don't wanna... I think that's very unlikely, just given the United oh, sure. States' commitment to Israel. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, and plus Israel's nuclear weapons. Right, so. right. It's a it's nuclear a power. Cause, but but again, this is you know, certain American allies are semi disposable or could be cut loose, and that's that's a shitty way to think about it. But it is in fact true, and that's how you know, sort of these satellite powers are designed. But if the U.S. lost control of certain poles of power in a particular region, then you might see something more, you know, you, you might see America reaching for its old uh, military military uh, domination. Perhaps, but there's much, much greater risk now that the United States' uh, relative power has declined. Yeah. So I actually think uh, that, that you wouldn't necessarily, and, and plus the political costs of getting involved in a major conflict, I, I think are pretty high right now. And, and there hasn't been a draft since the early 1970s for a reason. So um, it, it is possible, but I don't think likely. I think a really, really important part of your piece is just noting this generational divide between restrainers and liberal internationalists. And it's hard to look at the American empire as it exists in its current form without thinking about the gerontocracy. Joe Biden, our oldest president, uh, before that, President Trump, very old, very old guy. And there's, there's this huge gap in terms of who could possibly fill those shoes. And, it, and this, this is something that doesn't just exist in politics. It's, it's economic. It's, it's, cultural to a certain extent. So I guess, how do we in an era as more and more people become restrainers and want to turn the American empire to something that's less actively destructive? How does that take shape? Because, you know, you, you wrote a piece called The End of Mass Politics, noting how the United States has curbed the efficacy of things like mass protests. I think it's it's unlikely to happen, uh, to be honest. Uh, but if there was a mechanism for change, uh, it would probably be a kind of Leninist cadre strategy where people take over certain nodes in the American state that are particularly important and then use their positions within the state to change the direction of U.S. foreign policy. I think it's very unlikely uh, because the elites who govern this country, uh, not only the older elites, but elites of all ages, just benefit from the current structure, or at least they think they will for now and forever. So I think it's, it's quite unlikely to, to happen. Right. But I mean, uh, and I just saw this on uh, Twitter, Andrew Yang's forward party tweeted out this, uh, this uh, really cool stat, which is two out of three people want a new political party. As people lose faith in electoralism, in, in change, how do residents of our empire deal with that 
lack of agency. I mean, I think you're seeing it online. I think this is one of the reasons everyone kind of feels disconnected and discombobulated and precarious is that there's no way to change. I mean, there's several reasons why, but one of the reasons is that there's no way to channel political opinion or public opinion in, into political transformation, that the system is designed to basically quash any attempts to actually change things, whether it's Roe v. Wade, the overturning of Roe right. v. Wade by the incredibly undemocratic Supreme Court, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's the institution of the Senate, uh, whether it's the Electoral College. These are all anti-democratic institutions, and we live in a fundamentally anti-democratic country. Uh, and that's just procedural democracy, mm -hmm. you know, to say nothing of economic democracy or social democracy or cultural democracy. And so I think that's one of the reasons that there's been so much coming apart in recent years, is that people are feeling that in a way that they hadn't previously. I mean, or is it that there's a there's a place for that now. I mean, there there has definitely been like a scrambling of what we think of as traditional conservative or traditional liberal values. Like, I don't know, not that I want to get into it, but the existence of tankies or or gay Republicans. Like there there are things that are seemingly political positions that would not have existed in the past that are kind of becoming part of the, the discourse now. But in a certain way, people have always felt that way. Like they just haven't had like a they it it just hasn't been online, so it's been invisible. I think that uh that that's partially correct, but I do think that that it's something more because I think the social bonds have been totally fractured in the last thirty years due to the advent of neoliberalism in the nineteen seventies and the the total ending of the New Deal order and the increasing alienation and isolation. Uh about what it means to be an American. So uh, I think there there has been more opportunity for voice, even though you know, there were many daily journals and things like that back in the day. Um, but I think it is more than that. I think there's a structural shift. As you noted, this has been an ongoing process of deterioration, atoliation of American empire. So what drew you to this particular subject at this moment? I've, it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I, I just thought um, in the wake of the uh, war in Ukraine, people hadn't been talking as much about the larger picture of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so that's what I tried to do in this piece was to basically present what is going on in Washington, D.C. in terms of the very macro discussion about what the future of U.S. grand strategy is going to be. And in my opinion, it focuses uh, much more on U.S.-China relations than uh, U.S.-Russian relations. And the advent of the war in Ukraine, which, I mean, we, we don't have to get into this. We don't have to <laughs> sort of uh, make a ruling on this right now, but the U.S. has perhaps done little things since 2014 to kind of make this this war happen and uh it's happening now and there was there was definitely a period where you got to see who in your life was a liberal internationalist <laughs> um, because they were glued and non and talking about ukraine nonstop. but this seems like the outsized role that russia plays in political discourse compared to someplace like china is it because we're just kind of stuck in this cold war mindset that we just can't move on we can't let it go yeah absolutely just decades of propaganda decades of political discourse it, it's a it's a familiar feeling for many of the people in power and it's not just like our political systems are gerontocratic a lot of our cultural institutions are as well so it's not a surprise that people are returning to narratives that they're familiar and comfortable with i think part of what strikes me reading the piece is that you know 
it's it's so obvious why this is a or at least to me again maybe it's again it's a generational thing but why would citizens or politicians have any interest in interventionism because it's romantic americans think they're the protagonists of history and there's finally a struggle where they're not the bad guys i think it's a lot of that too and particularly if you're an elite that you're not actually like suffering or concentrating on your material needs this allows you to basically larp war that you could be you know a step you're not in any way going to be harmed by anything that your country does in ukraine but you could become part of this struggle that you envision. I, I think genuinely they envision this as, as sort of a noble struggle. It's romantic. People like feeling like they're heroes, and especially in an unheroic age. <laughs> and, and in an age where it's never been easier to show that you have the right politics or right. seem to have the right politics. Right. I mean, It's very easy this... to do that, too. You just say something on Twitter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is what I'm alluding to. This, you know, the liberal displays of patriotism, and so much of that is uh, rooted in this romanticization of democracy, particularly, you know, the American form of democracy. So, if if someone, perhaps, you know, I'm not being like go fight with your elderly relatives at Thanksgiving about this, but you know, this, the, what what can we gain? What is to be gained from collectively shifting our view on the supremacy of democracy, of thinking about different forms that it could take or d entirely different systems of governance? I mean, maybe maybe over time we could have political change, um, <laughs> though I don't think it's in the immediate offing. Personally, I think it's going to take like. I don't think violent revolution is possible, but it's going to take some form of no. <laughs> revolutionary change in the institutions of democracy where like we actually become a legitimate democracy, at least procedurally, where one vote means the same thing across states, where there's a lack of gerrymandering when you get money out of politics. I mean, I don't really see it happening. I think, you know, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx had a quote, we'll either get communism or socialism or we'll, we'll experience the mutual ruin of, of the contending classes and we might be in the era of mutual ruin. That's where things are pointing <laughs> toward. <laughs> uh, well, to expand on the idea of ruin, you know, you, you mentioned that climate change is one of the biggest challenges that, again, and this is not something that the United States is in alone. And the Supreme Court's decision to limit the ability of the EPA to do what it's supposed to do has implications for the entire globe. And this is a problem that cannot be solved through military means. Well, well it's also also the problem is that Americans have been consuming an incredible amount for literal decades. And what it means right. to be an American is to be a consumer. So stopping to consume is not just is something basically, I'm not going to say impossible, but extraordinarily difficult to do uh, because it's getting rid of one of the main uh, components of uh, a lot of Americans' identity. Um, so to be an American is to be a consumer. Um, and that is in direct contradistinction to, uh, but we can't arrest or reverse climate change, but to like make it a little less horrible. Plus the fact that most of America is not going to be horribly touched by climate change. Like many things, it's going to be experienced the worst in the global South. So that also makes it difficult to imagine that Americans are actually going to stop consuming whatever incredible amount of the world's energy, incredible amount of the world's plastics, raw materials, et cetera. But how could this restraint uh, position be helpful towards stalling emissions to sort of changing this this wh where we're clearly headed how how might we go about changing it 
In well, like no, a- no, no. I mean, I mean, like instead of you know, again, this is not necessarily like a. This is not a military problem, right? This is not something that can be solved through military means. This is this is a this is a, a different way. But so how how might you know rather than liberal internationalism, thinking in those terms, how might thinking from a restrainer perspective help stall emissions? To, I mean, the to- I- the ideal world is that you restrain and reduce U.S. power. Uh, and then you somehow <laughs> focus domestically on transforming Americans' conception of themselves. And as you're doing that, you you would negotiate climate agreements with other countries that are also large carbon emitters like China um, and India. The problem, however, is China and India will be like, well, why did you get to develop and we don't get to develop? So it's a big problem that uh, I'm not sure there's necessarily an easy solution to or really any solution that I really see. So you're advocating for the complete destruction of capitalism. That's well, fine. <laughs> I think that uh, barring that, uh, which does not seem in the offing to say the least, no. it's it, we're, we're just going to be putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. Right. Um, well, I'm, this is a very... This is, this is a very joyful chat. Do people like come with solutions? It. Like Americans like solutions, but I, mean, I <gasps> yeah. think that that like you have to look at the world as it actually is, or I try right. to at least. Right, but I mean, you know, and we're you know talking thinking about agency. If you, how do you? We don't have if, much agency. Right. Wait, no, that's what I'm saying. If we don't have agency, how do you? How do you? function do you just sort of like put it out of your mind and try to well i think what happens is is politics have just become entertainment effectively you know Mm -hmm. people treat it like entertainment they have their favorite team and whatnot and that that's a consequence of the lack of agency right and in an increasingly undemocratic society is there a recourse is there not again not to not to necessarily affect change because that seems very unlikely under this current system. But in order to just sort of go about without, you know, without complete hopelessness. I, I mean, a couple of things. You, you struggle and fight against it because of what else are you going to do? And you try to have it, uh, you try to prevent yourself from being consumed by it because you have to be a person who lives in the world. Um, and, and that's the truth. And then I think people also you know, come up with various strategies, you know, whether they delude themselves into thinking it's one way when it's actually the other way, if they just totally check out. And and that's not for me to say what people should do. Um, I just try to fight against it because what else am I going to do, even though I don't think there's much hope of success. And I mean, you were, uh, you're associated with the senator from Vermont, Bernard Sanders. You worked as his foreign policy advisor. Not, not his. I, I was a, a member a, of the foreign policy a, campaign team. I don't want right. to over over emphasize what I did. Uh, yes, but yes. no, but absolutely yes. It was totally associated with the campaign and stuff like that. <laughs> so, how did that experience shape your views on restraint? I mean, you know, talking. I, I really had the same view. I mean, I th- I think Bernie there was a chance that he would have he definitely would have pursued a, a foreign policy of restraint the question though is whether and how he would have exerted the political capital to actually attack the structures of the american empire like the bases and the budget and i think he would have tried whether he would have succeeded it, it's tough to know yeah my my favorite anti bernie argument is well you've been in the senate for so long how come you haven't dismantled the big banks and it's like guys it's just one dude 
<laughs> what, what is this? What is this? The, again, this this idea of teams and this idea that you yeah, know. just Americans just have no understanding of how power works. Again, because it, it's yeah. fandom, it doesn't matter, right? Like right. they have no effect. It's just fandom. Yeah. It's a way people like. That's why cable news and stuff has taken off. It's just like watching your sports team. I was very intimidated to speak to you about this because you have such a deep knowledge of American history. You have a very clear point of view. So when you were in the process of writing this, out of all of American history, why did you choose Henry Luce? And out of any sort of, you know, example of this idea of American supremacy, why that? Because I think oftentimes at the beginning of a thing, you could clearly see its contours. And Luce was writing really at the very beginning of this moment of American domination. Uh, I think that's true for for a lot of things. If you want to see like what people were envisioning um, about a particular subject, go back to the moment when that subject became really dominant. And so that's basically why it shows loose. And it was also it's a it's an evocative phrase. It's a it's a phrase that found purchase in culture. And so there were a bunch of reasons why I did that with loose. As you're considering America's relationship with China, you know you compare the U.S.'s strategy to that during the Cold War, which, uh, as you correctly note, and I think this gets looked over quite a bit, that there were thousands of deaths daily from the U.S.'s Cold War strategy. So how might the decline of U.S. power produce novel forms of international collaboration instead, instead of something that's actively harmful? Well, I mean, I, as a philosophical matter, I believe that people who live in a place are better able to determine their fate than people who don't. So mm. um, though there'll definitely be a lot of dislocation and, and probably um, some uh, some unpredictable things happening where the United States to restrain its power, I think in the medium and long terms, you, you would get new uh, political arrangements. You would get arrangements that are more connected to what's organically going on on the ground that reflects actual power relationships as opposed to a power like the United States coming in from outside and putting its thumb on the scale for various local uh, power brokers. Right. And I mean, I think of a place like Bolivia, which ravaged by colonialism, like heavily extractive colonialism and still pretty reliant on mining and it's, it's a place where socialism has taken hold. And I believe during Morales's uh, tenure as leader of the country, there was something like poverty was like halved. It was something inc incredible. And I'm sorry to Bolivian listeners that I don't have this exact figure, but it, it, was, it made a huge impact. However, there is still a great deal of, you know, inequality in the country. There's still a great deal of, you know, things that could quality of life improvements that could happen. So in a magical scenario where the U.S. is, you know, is able to stop being the bully and stop putting its thumb on the scale for a little bit, how can a kind of world that's been so damaged by the United States recover? How can it take those steps? I mean, obviously, as you as you know, uh, self-determination is one of them. But it seems like the U.S. made this mess. It's I mean, influenced I think this mess in a crucial way. Number one is identifying what the enemy is, and the en enemy is rapacious capitalism and exploitation and the extraction of resources that have contributed to a consumer culture that has slowly destroyed the climate. Barring that, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what else you're going to do. <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of like the the problem is. I, I think everyone kind of knows what the problem is. It's just right. no one wants to change their behavior, particularly the people who are benefiting from it. 
Right. Um, I mean, that's what that's what's kind of frustrating about this subject, because it's it seems very obvious what the uh, right thing to do is the, the the sane thing to do. And yet we are unable to do that because, of, again, because we've sort of lost a lot of the mechanisms of power. We don't live in a, a you know, a, a democracy that is, you know, one man, one vote sort of ideal. Yeah, no, absolutely not. We don't even anything approaching that. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's frustrating to, 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 <laughs> to try and kind of parse, to parse the ideas in this, because again, it's, it's an airtight argument and you, you, we really have no, um, we have no recourse. Right. And then it's just up to everyone to decide how they want to deal with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like if people were able to sort of tear their way from the fun show of electoral politics, do you think systems like mutual aid or other sort of grassroots organizations could really flourish to to, to fill in the gaps of, and, and I'm not talking like a nonprofit, I'm talking about sort of community driven systems of addressing you know, I mean, the, things the like that is... seem to flourish most amongst the bourgeoisie because they have the time to do that. So it, it doesn't seem like that's going to be a large scale um, transformation caused by things like that because there's no class consciousness. Because capital has super effectively reshaped labor relations where it's very difficult to build the solidarity upon which any class consciousness would uh, would, 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 would rest. Um, so no, I, I think that's unlikely to, to have transformation, transformational effect, even though in, in certain small instances like Berkeley, California or the Park Slope Co-op, maybe it might work. <laughs> I mean, what's frustrating to me is like people on my side of the spectrum, you know, want to pretend things are one way when they're actually the other way. And I think any positive transformation is just going to come about from being incredibly brutal about the actual obstacles and conditions, obstacles we face and conditions we live in, uh, under. Well, what is the way that people on your side of the political spectrum believe things to be? I think people think change is go- is going to be much easier and we'll have to rely on models of the past that I don't think are necessarily relevant, like mass protests or um, mass organizing. I think we need to actually look at the system how it is and then go from there. Well, that's why I was sort of trying to get at this question of like, I mean, again, not like, hey, listener, go out and take one, two, three steps. But this is, you know, sort of approaching these these issues in a you know in a way to a corrective way to sort of to deal with the reality that we have been given but it also it's it's hard because we keep sort of circling back to this idea well, that well we won't develop those ways unless we understand the situation that we're in and we're not even at the stage of developing those ways we're not we we haven't right. fully accepted the situation we're in that's what i'd say we're in the diagnostic stage, right? If you have a disease, you don't start just treating the body. You have to diagnose the disease first. The problem seems to be that there is, you know, as you just said, there's a dearth of thinking like this out there, right? Because, you know, uh, think tanks... Because the people paid to think about this are are comfortable, ultimately. Yeah, because the, the think tanks and, like, the NGOs and the nonprofits are run by a certain class of people. The professors, the journalists. Yeah, it's, it's, it's run by a certain class of people who are comfortable or want to come up with solutions that just sort of reaffirm their place in society and not really challenge anything difficult. But, I mean, do you feel like the solution is, again, talking about this diagnostic period, if there were, like, 
more just like left-wing think tanks, if there were more, uh, you know, college professors who wanted to kill God even more than that guy in the email. Like, would would this would would this change? You know, would would change get a little closer within our grasp? Perhaps, but it, I think it has to be much more broad based than that, and no one knows how to do affect that change. Hmm. Well, that's a bummer. This this has been a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. I know. I, I, I don't get bummed out about it. It's just like, I don't know. It's better to live in outside of the game, Plato's cave. If you can, I guess. I don't know. All right. Well, I guess we can leave it there. It's hard to, like you say, sort of put a band-aid on a cancer, but. Right. And that's the era we're living in. Yeah. Them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.